Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I am Dr. Luara Ferracioli, lecturer in political philosophy at the University of Sydney. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Thanks very much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Professor Louise Anthony about philosophers without gods. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for inviting me. And uh, could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Well, let's see. I was born in 1953 and raised in a very staunchly Catholic household. I um, to college in uh, at Syracuse University and had never had never questioned my religious faith. I mean, it just didn't seem didn't seem possible to not. It, it just wasn't something that had ever occurred to me to do. But in my very first philosophy class, the first issue we discussed was the existence of God. And I started thinking about these arguments for the existence of God, Anselm and Augustine and Aquinas, and then later on, arguments from design and other pragmatic arguments, pragmatist arguments by William James and so forth. And I couldn't get any of them to work. They all seemed to be wrong. from my, you know, beginning philosophy perspective, they all seem to be wrong. And I was getting distressed because I was really trying on this idea that God didn't exist. And then we hit the problem of evil. That's the problem of how there could be a perfectly good, all-powerful God and there still be as much suffering in the world as there is. And that was it. I just, I just realized I just didn't believe in this stuff. It was quite a crisis for me, and I think it was only when I began to see that moral values were separate from from my religious beliefs that I was able to kind of relax and and settle into a life of uh, of unbelief. Oh, you want me to um, (laughs) more than that? So I ended up majoring philosophy, went off to graduate school at Harvard, and didn't work on the philosophy of religion at all. Uh, I worked in the philosophy of mind and philosophy of language, taught at various places. My husband, who I met at Harvard, is also a philosopher, and he also had come from a religious background, a Orthodox Jewish family in his case, and had stopped believing. So we, we, had, uh, we had that sort of in common, and we talked about religion ourselves a lot. But I just continued to do my philosophical work. We, we had jobs at different places when there are two philosophers and you're trying to be in the same place. You often have to do some moving around until you finally get a, 
get a situation where you both have both have jobs and you're able to to live in the same household. So I guess I was teaching. I think I was teaching in Columbus, Ohio, at the University of Ohio State. And I was talking to a publisher's representative at Oxford University Press, and they had come out with a book called God and the Philosophers. And it was a collection of essays written in a personal vein by leading philosophers who were theists. And some of them spoke about how they converted to theism. In fact, my my first philosophy teacher in whose class I I converted to atheism had himself converted from nothing to Episcopalianism. And he wrote about that. And I thought, hmm, there should be there should be a companion volume where philosophers who do not believe in God explain their positions and what their lives are like. And so that's how the book Philosophers Without Gods was conceived. But since then I've I've just been doing work in philosophy of mind, mostly, some feminist theory, some work in epistemology, and it's only been in the last 10, 15 years that I've started actually writing about religion, but I've, I've now got seven or eight papers on various issues in, in religion, sort of mostly articulating and, and defending an atheist perspective on things. So what would your definition of an atheist be? I consider an atheist to be someone who is, is prepared to, is disposed to affirm the proposition that there is no God. So just saying, well, you know, I don't, I don't know if there's a God, or I think there's a God, but it's not really a God, it's a higher power. I personally would not describe such a person as an atheist. I mean, people can characterize themselves in whatever way they want. What I find is is more common than people calling themselves atheists when they really harbor some belief in a higher power or God. What seems to be more common is that people is people who actually don't believe in God but reject the label atheist. It's kind of it's kind of a toxic label for a lot of people. Why do you think it is that skeptics and atheists are viewed with suspicion? I can only speculate here. I mean, I know in some particular cases, but for one thing, I think that there are some very visible, voluble atheists who I have in mind Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and uh, Christopher Hitchens when he was alive, and to some extent Dan Dennett, and and Dan is a friend. But there's a, a kind of, they project a kind of arrogance and contempt for the views of, of uh, people who disagree with them. I mean, we all, we all don't believe the things we don't believe. If, if I, you know, if, if, uh, if you think the, the United States put a person on the moon in the 70s, uh, late 60s, and I think it uh, was all filmed in a, a stage set in Los Angeles, of course I'm going to think, you're going to think that what I think is wrong, and I'm going to think what you think is wrong. That's why we think the things we think. But I think that atheists have a reputation which is displayed by some of these more visible atheists of being very aggressive about their belief and very and very contemptuous of other people's belief. I sort of come to this issue partly from the point of view of a political activist. I've been active in a lot of different social movements over the over the years, mostly anti-war movements and 
movements for sexual equality and for uh, and against racism. And the people in the marches are very often religious people, especially when I was doing work mainly on um, on Central America. Many, many people in, in Central America are Catholic or are religious and Christians, and some of the Christian churches and Catholic churches in the United States are very, very progressive on social issues, issues about social justice. I saw that the, these are people who had deep moral concerns and beliefs and felt, felt most comfortable framing and expressing those beliefs and concerns in the context of uh, a religious framework. So I, I'm, not, I'm not going to put them down or feel superior to them in ways that I think some of the, the four horsemen atheists project themselves. And the other thing is that I know a lot of philosophers who are very, very smart and who are believers. So in my experience, being a believer doesn't go along with being stupid or not knowing what's going on. And it often goes along with concern about things that I think are very important. Would you know the statistics on the percentage of atheists within the general community? And does this differ very much from the percentage of philosophers who are atheists? So I did a little serious scholarly search consisting of asking Google. And I went to the website of the Pew Research Center. Are you familiar with that organization? No, I'm not. Pew is spelled P-E-W. I'll send you the link. It's a, it's a research center, and they, they do an awful lot of polling on a number of different issues, and it's one of the more, more trusted polls. You'll see it cited by serious journalists in the United States a lot. And one of the topics that they, they are um, known for researching is uh, religion and public life. So I found their latest... So I went to the latest... Uh, posting of theirs that I could find, surveying Americans' religious beliefs. So according to their latest poll, about 19% of Americans asked the question, do you believe in God or not, said not. So about 80% said yes to that question, 19% said no. Now, of the 80% who said yes to that question, only 50% 56% of those said they believe in God as described in the Bible. The others said they believe in some higher power or spiritual force. So you have really only about 40% of Americans who believe in God as traditionally described in the Bible, according to this poll. But it's a much smaller group of people who will de- describe themselves as atheists. Okay, this is mostly, the, the webpage I'm looking at is mostly about uh, the content of people's religious beliefs or non-beliefs. I thought they had a section on what, whether they would call themselves atheists. But it generally is, is not a term that people like. There's another poll, and I'll send you this link as well. It's an ongoing project at the, univers- at the University of Minnesota in the sociology department doing similar research on attitudes toward uh, religion in the United States. And the headline of this this particular study is, Atheists Remain Most Disliked Religious Minority in the United States. (laughs) Well, (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> what a great Let's title. <laughs> and they've gotten less popular. <laughs> Here we go. Okay. They found that 33% of respondents to their poll fall into a broad religious nuns category. That's not N-U-N-S. That's when they're asked, do you have, you know, what's your religious affiliation? They say none. Mm-hmm. So 33% have no particular religious affiliation, but only 3.8% of those will identify as atheists. The rest are either agnostic, spiritual but not religious, or nothing in particular. And 27% of Americans overall say that atheists don't share my morals or values. So there's certainly a stereotype out there of atheists as people who don't, don't have any moral commitments, people who don't have any moral values. So that's, that's clearly the stereotype. And the book was, was aimed partly at destroying or at least complicating that stereotype. Unfortunately, I have not been able to get everybody in the United States to read it. So, mm. Could you say that religious faith is a form of belief? Well, tell me a little bit more what you mean by that question, form of belief. I mean, it's people believe, they say they believe certain things. I suppose a belief, a belief in in God. I mean, as we know, there's there's many gods. There's the Western Christian God. There's a Muslim God, and I think the Hindu religion has quite a few hundred gods. So I suppose a, a belief in any one of those gods. Yeah. I, well, I think it you know very much depends on the. The denomination, the the, um, the religious tradition. I have quite a few friends who are consider themselves culturally Jewish, so they don't avow <coughs> belief in the Bible, but they but they conduct their lives in accordance with Jewish practice. They follow Jewish dietary laws, or most of them they um, celebrate Jewish holidays. So I think there are people who belong to religious communities and feel sustained by those communities that don't necessarily and wouldn't say that they they believe the doctrines. Actually, I, I was only in Catholic school myself for about three years, and I was shocked to discover that an awful lot of my classmates didn't didn't believe in God. They, they had to memorize the Baltimore Catechism, but you know they didn't believe it. Probably the most ardent believer among them. But it was, it, they went, they it was the school they went to, it was the people that they lived with, lived near, the people that they had social interactions with and so forth. It was a, it was a way of life. So don't know if you poll people coming out of uh, your average Protestant or Catholic church in the United States, I, I don't know how many of them would even know what the doctrines of their religion were. Do they believe them? Well, uh, another philosopher friend of mine, uh, Georges Ray, uh, makes a distinction. He talks about, he's got an essay in the in Philosophers Without Gods, and he distinguishes between people believing things and merely avowing things. And I think that's a useful distinction. I think it sometimes is apt for describing the state of mind of, of some religious people. But, you know, I, I think one has to ask people if they believe it. You can't presume that they either do or they don't. People, as I said, can be members of religious communities for lots of different reasons, and genuine belief can be can be part of that. 
Uh, your chapter in the book, Philosophers Without Gods, is called For the Love of Reason. Could you tell us about this? Well, so I wrote about my, my gradual conversion to atheism, and as I was thinking about that essay, I remembered various things that had happened when I was a child, and quite a number of them involved my asking questions about something that I had been told, and more or less being told to just stop asking the questions. And I found that extremely frustrating as a child and sometimes quite disturbing. I think I wrote about my distress about the doctrine of limbo, which apparently the Church has dropped. (laughs) But just in case uh, you or your listeners aren't familiar with this, well, you said you were raised in a Catholic environment, so you probably do. But it used to be held that, of course, we're all born into a state of original sin, and baptism is a sacrament that removes that sin. But what happens to either righteous people who never had the opportunity to become baptized, Gandhi is usually the sort of paradigm case uh, in, this, in this case of this sort of uh, situation. So what if you're a very righteous person, but you, you never have the opportunity to be baptized? And what if you're a tiny baby who dies before you can be baptized? And fun fact, I was actually baptized three hours after I was born because they were afraid I was going to die. I was, had RH incompatibility with my mother. Uh, they were, there, was, there was someone there who said, this baby has to get baptized. Well, what happens if you're not baptized? Well, you go to a place called Limbo, which is not a place of suffering. It's a, it's a place of, of almost perfect comfort and happiness. The only thing missing is that you're denied the sight of God, and you can't see God because you're in a state of original sin. And I just thought, what, what are you talking about? The baby didn't do anything. Why should they be, why can't God just wipe away the sin? You know, what's, what's going on here? So I thought it was unjust, and I didn't understand, you know, what the, what the necessities were here. Why did this thing have to be this way? Can't God do anything? And I would just not get answers to these questions. My, my religious instructors would sort of get a grimace on their face when they saw my hand go up. And I was finally told by one nun, well, actually, this was about a different matter. This was about how there could be three persons and one God. But I was finally told by one nun that this is a mystery, and that means you can't understand it, so stop trying. And this was... <laughs> This is very, very discouraging to me. I was also a child who had been brought up to believe that Santa Claus was real. I guess I was pretty gullible. And when I found out that he wasn't, I was, I was just, I was devastated. And I remember that and thinking, why did, why did they tell me that he was real? What was the, why did they do that? And, you know, why? I would be, I would argue, I'd say, well, how does he, we don't have a chimney. How does he get into the house? Or how does he get the, how do the reindeers fly? They don't have wings. Or how, how does he get to every house every night? You know, the, the normal questions you would ask if somebody told you this story. And my parents would, would come up with all sorts of twists and turns and ad hoc statements to, to try to answer the particular question. And in retrospect, I just think, 
boy, you know, your kid is asking perfectly reasonable questions and you're doing everything you can to, 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 to thwart them and confuse them. So those two things were kind of linked in my mind. And later on when I got into philosophy, one of the reasons that I enjoyed philosophy and that I, I um, really took to it was that it, it addressed this need of mine to make things make sense, figure out how they made sense, or at least try to. And also, instead of getting in trouble for arguing, as I had been most of my life, I got good grades for it. So I thought, yeah, this is for me. So that was when I finally decided, when I finally realized, I don't think it was a decision, when I finally realized that I just didn't believe in God, I felt this, I mean, it was a very difficult thing for me, but when I finally came to the conclusion, I just felt like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders. And I thought to myself, I think I actually formulated this thought myself. Now all I have to do is believe the things that I think are true, which had been during my, you know, as I was growing up, it was always in the back of my mind, well, is this consistent with, with, with my faith? I was wary of the theory of evolution, and I was, you know, there were books and movies that we weren't supposed to experience because they would test our faith and so forth. And so I just felt like, okay, now I just, figure out what makes sense and believe that, <laughs> which turned out not to be as easy as, as, I, had in, as I had expected. But, but it was like I wasn't serving any master anymore in my thinking. Another chapter in the book is called, If God is Dead, Is Everything Permitted? Could you explain a bit about this chapter? So that was a chapter by my friend Liz Anderson who teaches at the University of Michigan. And Liz is a very no-nonsense person. Um, she was profiled recently in The New Yorker. Actually, she's a political philosopher, social and political, political philosopher. And she just, she just marched through... Well, so the, the title, of, I should start there probably. The title is an allusion to this quotation that's often attributed to Dostoevsky. He didn't actually say it, and his character didn't actually say it but uh, the character that it's referring to, so I think it's in Brothers Karamazov, does express this nihilist view. The, the quotation is, if God is dead, everything is permitted, expresses the view that morality is essentially tied up with the commands of God, that the only thing that makes things right or wrong is that God commanded them. And if that's the case, then if it turns out God doesn't exist, then there's nothing right or wrong. Um, so Nietzsche is, is notorious for promoting this, this point of view. Some other figures, some existentialists like Sartre, are, were often accused of, of being nihilists, of thinking there's no moral value in the world, and there's no moral value because there is no God. Some theists have argued, have built this into an argument for the existence of God. They say if God is dead... If there is no God, then there's no moral value in the world. There obviously is moral value in the world, so there must be a God. Now, Liz, I think at the beginning of that essay, says that she, she finds that argument compelling, and she thinks that if it turned out that God was the source of morality, she would have to believe in God. But, and said they, but, she goes through the Bible, she just marches through the Old Testament and the New Testament, and says... There's a lot of evidence that that God, if if he really is as he's depicted in these 
scriptures, is not a moral person at all. Is not a moral being. This is this is an immoral being. This is someone who commands genocide and and tortures people and punishes children for the sins of their parents and so forth. So she just you know lays out this really um, <laughs> compelling indictment as a way of showing that there's no reason for thinking that morality as we understand it and feel it is tied up with this particular being who's depicted in, in these, in these uh, works of scripture. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Sure. It's a great pleasure. And I've been speaking with uh, Professor yeah. Louise Antony about philosophers without gods. Well, that's all we have time for today. Hope you've enjoyed the program and stay tuned for Swing and Sway.